Hello, welcome to Pharmarama. This week we learn about how some people importing Brazil nuts to the UK is supporting the indigenous people of the Amazon. We visit a restaurant who are making use of spare growing space in their community and learn about agroecological approaches to managing vineyards across Australia. Jyoti Fernandez journeyed to a gathering in the heart of the Amazon held by the Kayapo people. The indigenous people in the region are fighting to protect their territory after the fires that broke out while Bolsonaro was in power. Many of the tribes came together, along with other communities working and living in the region, to share knowledge and raise awareness to help care for the 12 million hectares of land that are affected. Jyoti was there to learn and hopefully respond to the indigenous group's calls for international support. She told us about the experience and the relationship that developed when she returned to the UK with Hodmi Dodds, a company who will likely be familiar to regular Farmerama listeners. So this gathering was really amazing. You know, we went into into the Amazon and watched, you know, all these tribes come together, you know, in, in, in ways that they, you know, dress in different ways, the different sub-languages that they speak, the way that they were greeting the chief and being there and 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 communicating and talking with each other as communities about, you know, what threats they faced and what needed to happen in order to protect those territories. And one of the calls for action was help selling some of the products that they can produce within the Amazon forest ecosystems um, and, you know, products of the standing living forest so that they could bring in an income stream to their communities, to their cooperatives, to their decision-making structures, to their activist networks that are protecting the Amazon and do this in a way that was held by the community. And so the Brazil nuts are one of those products that is there in the Amazon and they haven't exported these nuts before. Um, but they were starting to, you know, figure out how that they would collect these from these Brazil nut groves, which are so old. You know, some of the trees are 400 to 1,000 years old, you know, planted by their ancestors there as part of the food forests that they manage within the Amazon. And, you know, the communities go out as a whole community of indigenous people, all the different ages together, you know, to, to collect these nuts which fall to the forest floor. Um, and they use that income to be able to pay the warriors within their tribe, to be able to protect, you know, have, um, you know, um, what, what they call outposts, you know, at the, at the at beginnings of the entries to the, to the, to the rivers and to places where loggers and miners and, you know, people that might do illegal fisheries or whatever it is, what might come into the territory to stop them from coming into that territory. And just by their presence, having those communities living there, you know, they're protecting those territories because they're actively managing the forest ecosystems that are there. And it, so it's really beautiful to see that these these nuts, you know, were being collected by the community with their head baskets, you know, you know, pick, picking them there and macheting open the outside of it. And then they were brought back to the villages, um, stored in their huts, you know, and then brought by boat, you know, down, down the Shingu River um, and put into warehouses that they built and then get to the end of the Amazon, um, the river, the river is the river Shingu, um, and then be taken to a place where they could then be shelled and then exported to the UK for us to buy and bring in this valuable income stream. And it's, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing to know that that product has come directly from the work of the indigenous people and supports that their work and that it's coming straight to us. Josiah Meldrum is founder of Hodmi Dodds. With his partners, Nick and William, 
The company was set up to relocalize grain and legume supply chains in the UK. Our motivation was always around the, the wider ecosystem impacts of food and how we come by food and how food is produced and grown. And we all had a background in uh, kind of food systems globally as well as locally. So our interest is very much in, in relocalized food systems, but within a global context of the crises that we face. And I began, you know, my career, as it were, as it might be, as an ecologist, and very much inspired in the late 80s and early 90s as a teenager by pictures of rainforest destruction and, and the feeling that we needed to do something about something that was happening overseas. And then a gradual realization that actually we can intervene here in the way that our food system works in the UK. And I kind of have become sort of detached from that broader idea about deforestation and about how we might engage with that, that process. But when Joyty came to a meeting that I happened to be at uh, a year or so ago with a rucksack having just got off a plane. It was compelling to say the least. And when we tried the Brazil nuts, when we ate the Brazil nuts and they were just delicious, the freshness, the creaminess, the fact that they, they got this incredible story, this connection to an indigenous community was so inspiring that when Joyti was, was, was beginning to explore this idea about how we get these nuts into the UK, how we make that trading connection, and I kind of thought, well, we've already got a network of shops that we supply, a network of engaged customers, a system that we use to get things to people, to people's homes, and to tell stories about how they're produced and where they've come from. Could we not just use that to help sell the Brazil nuts and build this connection, use our enabling and facilitating role to help build this connection to the, to the Brazilian Amazon, to the indigenous people that are protecting what is a huge area of forest that is under critical threat and remains under critical threat. Nick Saltmarsh is Josiah's business partner. And initially it was quite a big conceptual leap from uh, handling British grown beans from farmers in East Anglia and, and more widely across the UK to thinking about adding Brazil nuts from the Kaipo people in in. The, the Amazon to our range. But really, there's a, there's a very compelling case, and, and we realised very quickly that this was a, a big opportunity to, to build on what we've tried to achieve through Hobbadorod of uh, forging closer connections between producers and the people who eat the food that, that they grow. And our focus had always been on British farmers. Most people don't have the opportunity to go to a farmer and buy a bag of dried beans. Most farmers wouldn't want to be um, have, selling to people turning up on, at their farm gate, but we can fulfil a role between the farmers and people who, who want to eat that food. And in a similar way, we can't go to the Amazon and, and buy our Brazil nuts, but we could see an opportunity to be uh, as, as transparent a part as possible in bridging that gap between the Kaipo and Brazil and people in the UK who, who want to eat their fantastic nuts. And it wasn't a, a huge logistical step for us. We've, we're very used to moving beans around Britain. Moving Brazil nuts across the Atlantic um, required a, a bit of <laughs> learning and will certainly be easier the second time than it was the first time. What we found is that people really appreciate the opportunity to have this close to the connection, to be able to buy these nuts with more awareness and more understanding of where they come from, who's produced them, what the impact is of them, and what's happened to them between being harvested from the trees in the Amazon and arriving uh, on, at somebody's doorstep, packed in a bag, so they're, they're ready for them to eat. 
I think trade is often painted as extractive and exploitative, and I think for good reason. Um, but it doesn't need to be. It can be very, very positive. It can bring people together. We've always talked about relational networks of supply rather than linear supply chains, where, where everyone can engage with everyone else in that system. Everyone can see who's doing what, where, how much they're getting paid, and what the broader benefit is, both ecologically to our health. And I think I think we can replicate that in our relationship with the Kayapo and with the Brazilian Amazon. And we can we can tell those stories very directly to our to our customers, the people that are buying and eating the nuts, and engage them in that whole process of protecting really quite a significant block of forest by contributing money to the people that actually live there and have a cultural connection to it. And I think that's really, really important. And, and I think that does make it different to an anonymous commodity that you might buy on a supermarket shelf. It's important in within solidarity trade to respect the food sovereignty of territories before focusing on export markets. And I think that's notably what makes this different. The global trade system, the corporate controlled system of trade is hugely extractivist. You get a lot of problems generated from reliance on that global trade system. But that doesn't mean there's not a role for trade to fit in to create a positive alternative. And with solidarity trade, the idea is that you trade products for generating the means for people to work for their own food sovereignty, for people to work for their own land rights, for food justice, for protecting frontline ecosystems, to be creating solutions to the climate and biodiversity crisis. So we'll be selectively choosing products that don't trade off with food sovereignty. That means there's enough food there for people within their territories to feed themselves and their communities good, healthy food using management systems that respect those ecosystems and and work on the basis of biodiversity. But they have extra food that they, they can trade within the global supply chain through solidarity trade that can bring them the resources that they need to protect those valuable ecosystems, to look after the communities, to in some way make reparations for the huge amounts of extractivism that's happened by an unbalanced neocolonial economic system. We haven't really invented the idea of solidarity trade. And obviously, for, for many decades, there have been direct trade organisations working with communities all over the world on non-commodity crops, foods, crafts, and um, you know, we're not we're not overlooking all of that work and that legacy. And if anything, we're building on it and we're looking at new ways in order to form relationships with those communities, uh, wherever they might be and whatever it is they might be making, growing or, or processing. So in the future, if it works and we sell these nuts, we'll be able to expand to be able to bring on products from other indigenous communities and peasant farmers around the world, protecting our valuable ecosystems and provide that solidarity support wider, creating a whole network of agroecological producers that we can directly be a part of. And we'll be looking to expand the products that we trade in, to think about the ecological impact of transport, working together with the Sail Cargo Alliance and other ways of transporting that are fossil fuel free and thinking about how all along that chain we can be supporting the producers to be able to do that frontline work that they're doing and supporting you know people working within the whole supply chain transporting and selling those products independent retailers people working within box schemes people with working in the alternative you know distribution and sales economy here in the UK to make it something where fairness works on all levels and we can really expand that impact and be a part of that network. 
We recently made a trip to Wallingford in Oxfordshire, in the south of England, to meet the owner of a restaurant who's set up an innovative way of making use of spare garden space around the town to grow produce to cook with. Judging my <laughs> my radish, sorry. Yeah, it's not quite as um. As you know. My name's Amy Collins, and I am uh, one of the three owners of Five Little Pigs in Wallingford. I'm the chef contingent of the three of us, um, and I am currently planting out some radishes in one of our neighbours' uh, veg patches. Spare bed is a neighbourhood farming project. We wanted to limit our sort of impact on food miles and have better control over what we were sourcing, knowing where it came from and less food waste. We didn't have the land to do it ourselves, so we sort of asked friends and neighbours whether we could borrow their veg patches and uh, the response was quite overwhelming. We've been really lucky um, in that a lot of our local community have been giving us veg surplus for for quite some time now. Um, the only thing I ban is marrows because I'm yet to find a way of cooking them that doesn't fill me with dread. But other than that, it's been, you know, it's been for the last couple of years, people turning up with, <laughs> Christ, anything you can think of. We are so lucky. And it sort of engenders just this feeling of mutual, mutual sort of community. It's, yeah, we're very lucky. So it's just a sort of next logical step from that because... There was this frustration with the supply of fruit and veg that I was having because we've got an amazing um, grower called Mark Stevenson and he's got an organic market garden called The Clays and that's in the village next to us. And we've been using him since we opened, but he is relatively limited in terms of size and we're doing 2,000 covers a month and it just, you know, we're bleeding him dry every week from what he's got. So I was just trying to fill a gap I have been using sort of other fruit and veg suppliers but because of the lingering effects of Brexit which everyone knows about and the war in Ukraine there have been massive issues over the last couple of years and it was just not having that control over the produce that was turning up in my kitchen seeing a lot of it go to waste because it wasn't quite fit for purpose or seeing things coming in that have been so sort of obviously trimmed whereas I would have used that yeah as I say it was just a frustration and this was sort of the logical way of dealing with it I suppose and also I mean this is great I get to call this work this is fantastic so we only started this up oh, two two months ago properly we had I think at last count it was 67 households come forward and say that we could make use of their space the space in itself varies quite wildly it in you know a couple of instances it's just a, a, a pot on a patio like a, a sunny patio which is great we've had a couple of orchards <laughs> full orchards which is phenomenal and that's just you know a, a part-time job in its own right to be honest but that's coming for us in September and then sort of everything in between so administratively it took us a month to sort of get our heads around that and work out which phases were going to be giving us an immediate return and that's ones like this the ones closer to the restaurant where we've got you know tomatoes courgettes radishes all planted up and we're already harvesting those from a lot of places. Um, I'll be taking some radishes back with me today. And yeah, all of those things are sort of making it onto the menu. The menu at the restaurant naturally has to be quite flexible to deal with things like that. And we're really proud of our ability to be flexible. So yeah, it's offering quite quick returns. It's been helped by the weather. Uh, we've been incredibly lucky. But it's just, it's going to be a case of scaling it up quite dramatically over the next few months and getting the overwintering crops in and things like that, just so there's not that awful 
dearth of things in January, February, where all it feels like you've got is kale for, you know, weeks on end. We've got a cocktail on at the moment because we try with the food, obviously we have this ethos, but you can quite often find in a lot of restaurants that then stops as soon as you get to the bar and that just didn't make any sense for us. So actually our bar is just as focused on sort of things being seasonal and foraged or preserved as the kitchen is. And there were a couple that came in and they had, we've got a, what is it, something with a radish in, it's some sort of martini. And they were, you know, having that and it was their radish. It's, it's amazing. I mean, you could be quite cynical about it and say, oh yeah, it's a great marketing ploy. Obviously it works on a marketing level. But it's, it's so much more than that. It's, it's brilliant. It's the most fulfilling thing I think I've ever done, perhaps, except for becoming a parent. I have to say that, don't I? Um, <laughs> it, really, it really is incredibly fulfilling. Yeah, it, it works well at sort of getting, and getting people talking to their own neighbours. Like we started a WhatsApp group and it's really lovely. You know, someone posted the other day saying, oh, courgette leaves looking a bit crispy. Has anyone got any advice? And, you know, 32 messages later. <laughs> well, that's nice that people are sort of talking to each other. When we came up with the concept, we were like, surely someone's doing this. Because as you say, it's sort of a relatively logical thing. We wanted to grow things. We don't have the land. Who has the land? How can we recompense people for that? Um, what's the system going to be there? But no, we've not actually found anyone else that is doing it. That's not to say it doesn't exist. In terms of advice, <laughs> probably not going to give farmers advice on growing things, but in terms of, you know, people that enjoy cooking and eating seasonal produce, it's, I mean, you really can do a lot with very little. Like this, the amount of food we could potentially get from this, I mean, it's a decent-sized bed, but it's, it's, not, it's not small holding. It's just, it's, it's mind-blowing. And when you start growing things yourselves, your attitude to what you've grown is so completely different to when it's just being dumped on your doorstep in a box every morning. You, you know, you want to savour every leaf, every flower, and you treat it just naturally with so much more respect than I think you would. And that passes on to the staff. You know, they know that when I've grown tomatoes and I go in with the leaves, no, they're not going to go in the bin. They're, you know, they're going into an oil thank you to how supportive everyone has been because you know in the same way as we crowdfunded the restaurant to get it open things like this we wouldn't be here because you know there is an obvious advantage to this and it's partially a cost-cutting exercise because margins are so hard to make at the minute it's not as straightforward as you take your 30 percent of your dish price and then multiply it and there you go you'll make money you'll pay your bills that doesn't survive that theory in a world where we're paying sort of £6,000 a month for our energy bills. Um, so, you know, people being on board with things like this means we will hopefully not just survive, but thrive. Yeah, we've got, um, I've got a notebook. It's everyone's sort of lifelong frustration with me. I'm such a Luddite, everything is in 50 million notebooks, but this one has vegetables in the front, so I know what it is. Um, and that's what I dress on. Mary Rettelak is an agroecologist with many years' experience working and applying an ecological approach to viticulture. She's got a particular interest in native insectary plants and their potential in biocontrol. Mary's the brains and brawn behind the phenomenal Eco Vineyards programme, bringing together native ground covers, soil health, and an agroecological approach to vineyard management across Australia. If we go right back to the start, <laughs> about three decades ago, um, I guess my passion for ecology and working with the intelligence of nature started when I left school uh, to study ecology. 
And then I went on to study viticulture as well. I'd also grown up on a, a fruit block in the Riverland where we grew uh, wine grapes, table grapes, uh, and also um, drying grapes as well. Um, so in the vineyard, um, I the first vineyard that I managed, I intrinsically knew uh, the right thing to do, which was to start to incorporate native insectary plants to provide habitat for predators. And the challenge I, I kind of came up against was um, all the insectary plants were sprayed out when that vineyard changed hands. So I was pretty grumpy <laughs> and I embarked on PhD studies to prove the benefits of these practices. So I was able to demonstrate um, that it's possible to boost the functional biodiversity um, by more than three times when we use native insectary plants uh, incorporated near grapevines and that we can have a, a net increase um, of around 27% uh, of, again, predatory um, species when we have native grasses like wallaby grasses planted in the mid-row or so the undervine area. So I then had the science and I had a message that I was really keen to share. Um, I was really lucky to um, be able to source some initial funding through the National Land Care Program in 2019. So I started the Eco Vineyards Program just with a focus on native insectary plants, so plants that provide habitat for a whole lot of fauna. Uh, and I worked in conjunction with the Wine Grape Council in South Australia. Uh, we ran the program over four years. We had two intakes and we're about to meet Dan. He was part of our inaugural intake. And now with the support of Wine Australia, we've taken the program national. So we've had overwhelming support from wine growers throughout Australia. Uh, we run events twice per year in each of the participating wine regions. We've got uh, currently a focus on three areas. So it's around soil health, ground covers, including cover crops and functional biodiversity. As part of the Eco Vineyards program, vineyards can apply in a competitive process to become an eco grower and they then become one of the demonstration sites for that region. The benefit of working directly with growers doing demonstration sites is that we're accelerating that time traditionally taken to do, say, full replicated trials. We can make informed decisions about the types of plants that are likely to you know, perform well in a region, and then we can test those assumptions. So you can say that the Eco Vineyards program has been 30 years in the making. Um, it's exciting that now we have this opportunity to shape the way that wine grapes are grown internationally with a focus on environmental stewardship, uh, ecology in particular, and, of course, working in harmony with nature. I always tr try and put my, myself in the shoes of a grower. Uh, I used to run a vineyard, so and I've worked with viticulturalists all over Australia for many years. So, you know, they um, are looking for, um, I guess, practices that make sense. I guess we're providing new information. We've been doing a lot of the same and expecting a different outcome. And of course, you know, we need to be able to do things differently to really, you know, make that step change. Everything that I do is science-based. We're really lucky to have a lot of uh, buy-in from growers. There's a lot of generosity there. We work from a position of generosity and kindness, and that's also reciprocated. The eco-growers that sign up to do our program are also contributing a financial and in-kind contribution, and then we times that up by at least four times and value-add. We have a, a range of um, on-ground um, coordinators or regional on-ground coordinators that we call ROCs, so there's one-on-one -on -one support there, and we're empowering growers to teach other growers, so it's just not top-down information coming from me as a, you know, as a scientist, but we're working to provide really timely and practical solutions for growers that make sense 
And we've got this critical mass of interested growers and it just keeps growing. And it's all about working smarter rather than harder, breaking that cycle of intervention. And what we want to do is set our vineyards up for long-term solutions and and build resilience um, so that we can bounce back if there's disruption in the vineyard through climate change, extreme weather events, whatever that might be. Dan Falkenberg is the viticulturist at Edenhall Wines in the Barossa. He's been an eco-grower for a few years now. I always had a passion for the environment, but being able to to weave that into a production system like a vineyard. Um, so with with Mary's program, the Eco Vineyards, um, that, that was just right up my alley straight away um, because I, I wanted to look at different ways of being able to um, produce grapes sustainably um, and, and really a long-term approach and, and seeing whether I could um, bring um, native vegetation in, into the vineyard really for biocontrol and really the Eco Vineyards program uh, with, with Mary's science base behind that really quantifies all of those things so that for us as eco-growers that there is some science behind it to say that we are actually doing the right thing and, yes, it works. And as time goes on, more and more people are getting involved. Some getting in um, a lot more um, interest from other people who want to come to our vineyards and have a look at what we do, how we establish native grasses and what the benefits are and all of the native vegetation that goes with that. So there, there's certainly a shift in, in that way of thinking. Initially, um, um, I got a, a small grant. Um, to establish native grasses to enhance biodiversity in the vineyard. So I wanted to establish some native grasses in there, and particularly at that time, I could only get four species, um, and they were pelleted, so it go- it gives it the ballistic properties to flow through a cedar because um, if you've seen native grass, it's inherently difficult to, to manage. It's quite fluffy and it blows away in the wind. It's really... Um, quite tricky to deal with. So um, we had a good stand um, there with that over, over a 10-year period. That was um, a self, self-recruiting. But I, because I could only get those four species, I really wanted more diversity in there. I wanted to shift from that monoculture system to a polyculture system. So with the Eco Vineyards project, um, and as time has moved on, more species become more available. So we've been able to add in, you know, a huge diversity of native grasses and forbs and so oversow them into the vineyard, which now has really given quite a broad mix of, of species throughout that vineyard. And not only um, in the mid-roast, but that's actually spreading under vine now. So we're reducing, you know, herbicide, all those sort of things are starting to really fall by the wayside. And that then has sort of flowed on to where I work at Eden Hall now, where, you know, we've developed nine hectares of um, native grass in the mid-rows and also taken herbicide out of the equation and allowed it to grow under vine. And the vines are extremely happy. And we're doing more and more each year um, in, in that space. And it, to me, it has a huge amount of benefits. You know, we're bringing sheep into the to the equation as well. We're, we're only having to, to mow once a year where previously we were mowing four times a year. So, you know, we can 
we can bring in these other management techniques by bringing in something that's an Australian native that gives us great, great benefit. Um, and they flower at the same time, basically grapevines do. So you've, you've got all of these um, beneficial insects that are, are, are hanging around in the vineyard at that time of flowering when typically you could have like brown apple moth or other pests there. So you, you're creating this biocontrol there within the vineyard and it's, it's, it's really a, a win-win situation. It's about working smarter and with the environment and not harder. You're always going to have some, some pests within your vineyard you know, um, but it's it's about monitoring. We're seeing reductions in in light brown apple moth and other pests there by bringing natives into the into the equation. So insecticides are, are one of those things that are just falling by the wayside. So for us, it's a money saver, it's a time saver, and it's and it's an ecological way of being able to to manage something within the vineyards. There's a whole range of other ecosystem services that we are able to tap into essentially for free. So things like uh, Dan's mentioned, the biocontrol of insect pests, but also um, weed suppression, erosion control, improved soil structure, nutrient cycling, um, soil retention um, of water uh, and improved organic matter and that biological activity. And everything we do, we're interested in the cost benefit and I know in Dan's case, you might like to elaborate on this further. You were doing an annual triticale crop prior to changing to the native grasses, and they're cheaper initially to put in, but you're having to intervene on an annual basis. Um, so the native grasses might um, cost, say, $1,500 a hectare in the mid-row to establish, so you won't break even until year two or year three, but then you've broken that cycle of intervention. It's a perennial regenerating grass, so you're not having to um, prepare the soil, compact it, destroy the, destroy the soil structure, pay for that seed, um, slash, spray it out and so forth. And I know, Dan, you know, some of your comments were that you had an issue with light brown apple moth in the Grenache previously. You also had some pressure from some pre evening primrose, some wireweed, um, salvation jane. And by changing that management practice, like you said, you didn't have to intervene with insecticides, but it also helped outcompete those weeds and to be able to help store moisture at depth. And we also know that we can get um, some significant benefits uh, in terms of the building of organic matter, you know, over a number of years, it can go up 23% off of the standing base. So there's a lot of benefits to thinking about the long-term change and Ultimately, that's going to save time and money and you get the benefit, all those other benefits that come with that practice change as well. Part of what we're doing also is we're advocating for 100% ground cover and active root growth 100% of the time wherever possible. So that means that we're moving from um, annuals to perennials. We're moving from introduced, say, commercial perennials to locally adapted species, which are native grasses and forbs. And we're interested in multi-species mixes. So you know, just making sure that we're moving away from bare earth wherever possible is a really important part of actually, it seems counterintuitive, but that's the way for us to grow carbon and actually store water at depth as well. So it's available when the plants need it. And instead of um, storing water above ground into dams, what we're really keen to do is store water 
in the soil profile so it's there when we need it and it's protected when those conditions are particularly hot um, and uh, there's otherwise going to be a lot of evaporation losses. We actually received some really nice feedback from one of our eco-growers, Heather Webster, just today. So her answer to, you know, kind of the question why is the eco-grower, eco-vineyards program special or works really well is it's a powerful program based on strong science. It's a program of its time with significant public appeal and the capacity to engender a whole new generation to connect in a positive way with the land which sustains all of us. It's more than a way of growing grapes. It's the signpost to a better way to live. It's also sorely needed in an environment under pressure and facing significant losses to our unique Australian flora and fauna, which we yet, yet don't understand. And I, I was quite touched by that. It's really quite insightful. And the other testimonial that I have from a, a local grower, Lulu Lan from Tintuki Vineyards, touches me also. I've known Lulu for many years and she's um, been growing wine grapes for many years and in her words she talks about that she can't speak more highly of the eco vineyards program and the privilege of being part of the program she's learned so much more about ecology and interaction of plants insects and even soil and its microbiome since beginning with eco vineyards it's encouraged um, her to read learn and research more and be more inquisitive and Lily says, after 35 years of being in the same job, it's reintroduced enthusiasm back into it, and she's really excited about the future. And it's kind of though that feedback that really makes it so worth it for me, just knowing that you're making a um, a change. Yeah, look, it's a it's a fantastic program that that um, you know everyone can get involved with, and. You know, I, I look back at um, yeah, knowing, knowing well, Mary and I have known each other for a long time now, but, um, you know, looking at just what I have learned, you know, in, in over that space of time, it's been really quite incredible um, and a credible journey uh, in that respect as well. And being able to, you know, have that science behind um, a lot of the, the decisions that you make, um, really, um, that really rings true with me and that, you know, I, I think that considering what's going on at the moment, um, you know, I suppose in the terms of climate change and, you know, wine grapes are, are, can be highly affected by by changes in climate. You know, this this program brings about, you know, some of that science, but also that, that the principles and practices behind that to create that resilience. So it's a it's it's a great program for for change. Um, and that's for sure. Um, and and I can see I can see this program growing bigger and bigger. And from what it has started out to what it is now, I think um, you know the the sky's the limit. This is um, it's certainly um, chugging along very nicely, and and it's certainly going to be become um, um, mainstream at some point in time. Part of the Eco Vineyards program, we meet growers wherever they're at from. Um, a traditional way of growing grapes um, or conventional way right through to um, minimal input, regenerative, uh, organic, biodynamic, um, whatever the approach is being taken, um, there's an opportunity to then run an ecological lens over those practices and um, work in harmony with nature. And uh, we don't need to fight nature. We are 
nature. So whatever we do to nature, we're doing to ourselves. And uh, you're working in harmony with nature provides better outcomes. The Eco Vineyards program is one of the most impressive national scale programs we've come across to support a transition to more regenerative or ecological approaches. You can find out more and access many invaluable resources on their website and social media. And if you're based in Australia, they've got a really interesting series of spring events. This episode of Farmerama was made by Abby Rose and me, Joe Barrett. Thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team. That's Katie Revel, Dora Taylor, Olivia Oldham, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, Lucy Fisher and Fran Bailey. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. We're really grateful of those of you that support us and allow us to bring you these stories each month. Even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. So if you'd like to become a supporter, you can visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama.